Good morning. Scripture is Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, good morning. We're going to do something a little different this morning. I want you to open up your chat window in Zoom. So if you are um, running around with kids right now trying to keep them occupied or away from your phone, sitting back from it, I want you to get into a place if you can where you can open up the chat window in Zoom. And I want us to fire some things into the chat this morning. And these can take time. They don't have to happen right here as I'm saying it. But write down this question. And then as you're thinking of answers, throw them out to us via the chat so we can all hear what you have to say to have a little interactivity this morning. I want you to think about this. When when was the smallest or most significant you've ever felt? Is there a time in your life when you can just remember feeling really small, like a speck of dust in the cosmos? Or is there, it doesn't have to be the time you ever felt it, or when you were the smallest, but is there a time that you can name where you just feel the limited nature of your little body in this huge, huge world? Maybe you were just so incapable or inconsequential or so fragile Or you felt, as James says, like a mist. Just throw that in the chat because I want to give, I want us to help get a little perspective from each other as a church on maybe the different walks of life and the different things we've struggled with where we have encountered our limits. I know the pandemic has certainly been this for us. And next week, as we re enter our church, I think we're going to be entering a space where it's going to be amazing. So I, I read, and I think it was a Times article that said, it's going to feel like we're at recess, David Brooks was writing. We're all going to just collectively, those who are able to in the countries that have vaccines, are going to feel like we finally get to go out to recess. But this time has been very significant for us. And so today I want to look at Psalm 46 as a song of Holy confidence, Charles Spurgeon calls it, a song of awe, a song in which the sons of Korah who wrote it could feel their correct size in the relation to an almighty God. Now, this has been a theme that we've had throughout the Psalms. And I want to ask this question as we look through this Psalm. What does answering speech 
look like for this? I want, I want to drill down on how do we answer God in his nature of the psalm. So first, let's look at the nature that they paint God in. God is our refuge and our strength, it says in verse 1. And then look what happens. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall in to the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. The sons of Korah, I don't know, maybe they were like the first Jonas brothers, you know, these poet brothers, seem to, seem to be disaster junkies, laying out these scenes that we're familiar with, maybe some of us, Certainly I was coming of age in the 90s with these disaster movies. Dante's Peak with Pierce Brosnan or Volcano or Deep Impact or Armageddon, right? Meteors or asteroids flinging at the earth, the end of the world from aliens and Independence Day, these sort of global cataclysmic visions where we suddenly feel like, whoa, it could all end. How does man face sort of the inevitable, the undoing, the deepest, most primal fear that the very creation itself would undo itself? It's as if the sons of Korah, long before we understood the second law of thermodynamics, that everything falls apart, entropy, that they were able to tap into this and put it on steroids live before us in song. And they don't just put it in like a temporal, limited way. I mean, this could be a, a, a poetic interpretation of a war against Jerusalem or Israel by a warring nation. But they don't just limit it to the moment. If you look forward to verse 8, they do something different with this, this truth that everything falls apart. And what do they do? They put it in the hands of God with a vision. It says, come and see what the Lord has done. But then what he has done is clearly not the reality of that time. So this come and see language is also translated as the word behold. And what it is, is it's oracle language. It's visioning forward, like receiving a vision like John or Revelation. And so this is looking at an end times reality. A sort of certain truth of how things will eventually be one day. And it says, behold what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. So these poets have made a cataclysmic sandwich. They've said, there's cataclysm here, and there's a final cataclysm then. And in the middle of it is the protection and the refuge of God, because what will happen at the end times is that there will be an utter desolation of the earth. It's the only way that God can make wars cease, that he can kill sin, that he can end evil. And it's coming. How do we answer a God like that? The key, of course, is in the middle where we have the protected city. 
If there is an indomitable God, as Derek Kidner, the commentator, said about this, what this reveals about the character of God, that he is undefeatable. If there is an indomitable God, then he wins. And that means that answering God in Psalm 46 is doing this, waving the white flag and saying, I surrender. And in fact, God says as much in this oracle vision. In verse 10, he says, be still and know that I am God. Well, I mean, I, I literally passed a sign with that phrase on it at a church near my house on the way home the other day. And I looked over and I said, that's funny. I'm preaching on that. Be still and know that I'm God. When I read it on that sign, it just felt really sweet. You know, it just felt like, oh, you know, a meditation mantra. Just, you know, be still, quiet, quiet, call it, quiet and calm your soul. But I think when you look at the Hebrew translation of this, a lot of commentators say that it's essentially the word enough. Be still, exclamation point. Enough. Know that I am God. And that fits with what comes next. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth itself, in the mountains, in the seas. I have power over them. They worship and are meant to worship me through an act of holy surrender. So I wanna to talk today as a response on answering God about a trajectory that that puts us on because it puts us on a process of surrendering to God and then I want to talk through that process about the fruit of that surrender for God. And then I want to get to some practicals for us about what it looks like for us to surrender to God. So we are not indomitable. We are not undefeatable. God is. But if we return to these 90s disaster movies, if we return to Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck going off their oil rig up to some asteroid, I mean, it's just an insane story, going up to some asteroid and digging holes in it to like put nuclear bombs in it to blow it off course of the earth, like that sells movie ticks. Tickets that, that puts butts in seats. That, that breaks box office records. That stuff sells. And that is not about an indomitable God, but about an indomitable man. What sells movie tickets is the message that is culturally in favor that says you can't outsmart mankind. I think of the more recent movie, which is sort of maybe a maturing 21st century version of the similar idea, which is Christopher Nolan's movie Inception, if anybody saw that movie. The kind of concept of this movie was that you could actually tap in and dream into people's dreams and live in these realities within their dreams. And time sort of slows down and there's this Russian doll effect of going dream within dream and it's sort of like an exponential slowdown. And in this process, there's this scene in which the characters are like multiple dreams down in it. And they're like skiing down this mountain. And as the person is waking up whose dreams they're inside of, literally the mountains are falling in on themselves. And I just thought of that image when I thought of this psalm. Just literally the ground beneath their feet is falling out from under them. And of course, the metaphor in that film 
is that we can even drill in and escape as the main character seems to do so deep within the dream that can, he can even escape the death within dreams and live like this alternate reality that humans can outsmart even the very fabric and nature of our existence to live forever. But of course, there's this sense in all of these movies that we have nagging in our soul where the deep fear comes from is that it seems like there's a point at which as mankind we have nothing left to stand on. Can we really outsmart things by hiring a guy on a Texas oil rig to go up into outer space and blow an asteroid off? It seems pretty ridiculous. But the point is that culture has indoctrinated us into the religion of humanism. Secular culture is a very religious thing. And the thing that we worship is our God is the collective mankind, is the triumph of the human will as a global force that will somehow repair and bring its own eternal prospering. And in order for this to happen, the heroes in these stories are always these bold, headstrong schemers. From DiCaprio and Inception to Bruce Willis and Armageddon, we have these headstrong men who will not be beat. And we, we love that. We love that. That puffs us up. That gives us some stature and some dignity and the hope in this mankind humanism religion of the indomitable human. But this is the nature of sin. This is sin. The secular human religion without God is a sin religion with its own practices and rituals and liturgies. This is your courtesy reminder that, that you are formed by culture. As James K.A. Smith says, we are what we worship. And the Bible is very clear on what this sort of dreamy, Mankind conquering everything worldview is, it's wishful thinking. Psalm 46 calls it wishful thinking, and only one is victorious, the Alpha and Omega God. But the schemer, the schemer goes way back. In fact, this is not a new concept at all. We have a great story of the schemer in the Old Testament, and it is actually sort of uh, indicated in this psalm, in verse 7. Verse 7 reads, The Lord Almighty, it's actually twice, verse 7 and verse 11, it's a refrain, The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Peter sent in the message, translate this, The Jacob wrestling God fights for us. And that sort of triggered in my mind, I, I felt a, an urge to investigate the Jacob wrestling God. A God who wrestled with a man. A man who wrestled with a God. What is this story? And if you zero in on the story of Jacob, he is like the primal schemer. I don't know if you are familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau, but if you go to Genesis, kind of in the heart of Genesis, and look right after the story of Isaac, you get to this actually fairly long story in Genesis about the character of Jacob. Now, Jacob is born 
a twin. He comes out of the womb right behind his brother Esau. And there's a Hebrew idiom used there. And it says he is the one who he grasped at Esau's heel. And that idiom of one who grasped at the heel is a deceiver, a circumventor, a supplanter, one who will overtake the other. And so there was sort of this mythological underpinning in the way the story is told and the poetry that shows us that the very setup is for Jacob to be this character of high drive, strong willed scheming who comes out second, but will end up on top. Created man under the indomitable God, but man will end up on top. You see the connection there. And so if we come forward to Genesis 32, I want to zero in. And if you want to turn in your Bibles, we'll be here for just a minute. Genesis 32, we find a story about when Jacob reaches the end of his rope. No matter how hard he schemes, he seems to be pinned down. And we find Jacob by the river Jabbok, and he is exhausted from scheming. Now look, all Jacob had known, all he had been taught was how to scheme. He was raised by a scheming mother, Rebecca, who taught him as, as her favorite, she liked him a lot more than Esau, taught him how to get his way. And he spent a lot of time with mom because Esau was Isaac's favorite. Because Esau was the hunter and caught the game. And Isaac could have his belly full and loved his son who was out there, you know, driving his four by fours. And here's Jacob, probably the book reader. And we see this story where Jacob inherits this scheming And this wheeling and dealing. And there's a number of stories, and I can't go into all of them, but basically he builds his life up by setting up these verbal agreements and then selfishly leveraging these agreements, but imploding personal relationships in the process. You know, we we sometimes call this living by the letter of the law. You get so frustrated at somebody because, yes, you did say they could do that, but they, they didn't really have the place to do that. And by doing that, they're ending their relationship with you. It's this conniving, scheming, very thought-out way of living. And we find in this story that he first is able to secure Esau's birthright. Esau comes back super hungry, and he says, and Jacob has soup that he's cooked probably with a recipe from mom. And Esau says, give me that soup. And Jacob says, not unless you sell me your birthright. And Esau says, what good is it to me? I'll die if I don't eat this. Esau's impulsive. Jacob has a lot of foresight. But also, Esau, after he ate that soup, was probably like, I ain't giving you my birthright. And Jacob knew that. And so then Jacob goes to get the birthright much, much later when Isaac's at his old age. Isaac is probably senile. He's definitely blind. And Jacob wants the birthright, and Rebecca wants the birthright for Jacob because Esau's like a playboy. He's off with all the Hittite women. He's married two Hittite women. He's not following in the ways of his father. He's an embarrassment. But he's the oldest, and he gets the birthright. And Rebecca says, uh-uh. I ain't giving him the birthright. It doesn't look like that's going to work out for us. 
And so she dresses Jacob up with skins to make him feel like Esau and brings him in to steal the birthright. Now, ask yourself, why would, why would ja if Jacob had been sold Esau's birthright, why couldn't he just go to Isaac and say, look, Esau sold me your, his birthright and I'm come here to collect it? Because he knew that neither Isaac or Esau would agree with that. Esau would say, I never said that. Isaac would say, you can't do that. And so Jacob resulted to trickery, to circumvent. And this is the lifestyle of Jacob. He then goes off, he, he basically steals the birthright, and Esau, Esau, in a murderous rage, comes to get his birthright right after that. Finds out that Jacob has stolen it, and basically says, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. Right? Just a murderous rage. So Jacob hightails it out. Rebecca packs his bags and he gets off to Uncle Laban's house, Rebecca's brother. Well, Uncle Laban is like the original schemer. This guy taught Rebecca how to scheme. And so Uncle Laban allows Jacob to work for him. I mean, Jacob's like broken, penniless because he's very good at leveraging verbal agreements, but he implodes his personal relationships. And he comes to Laban to work for him, and Laban promises Rachel, who is the beautiful daughter that Jacob wants to marry. And Jacob works for seven years, and in the drunken wedding party, and in the festivities, Laban, in his conniving, deceitful way, puts Leah in the tent. Leah and Jacob consummate their marriage. Jacob wakes up next to Leah and goes, what in the world have you done? I can't even imagine that conversation. And Laban feeling pretty proud of himself, knowing the cultural rights and what it meant, and that actually Jacob consummated the marriage, so it's on him. Says, look, sorry. And then Jacob says, I, I want Rachel. And Laban says, only if you work for seven more years. So you see, there's, this, there's just this mutual using. They have a family culture of manipulation and selfish using of each other. And we come to Genesis 32, and Jacob has just left Laban after all of this back and forth and this scheming. In fact, Jacob has basically cheated Laban out of a huge amount of his flock, taking the best sheep and leaving Laban with the weak ones. Laban's found out about this, and the two are basically not on speaking terms anymore. But Jacob is powerful enough and wealthy enough that they just decide you can never come back here. And so now Jacob is going off to the point of no return, right? He can't come back. And he's setting out, and he's by the river Jabbok. And what he finds out in front of him is that his brother Esau owns that land. So Jacob has spent all of his chips cheating, lying, maneuvering, and he's now cashing everything out in the hope and fear of his brother. And he sends like all of his stuff, his best stuff out as a gift ahead of him. And he says, I just have to cash out my chips and hope that my brother will forgive me. So when was Jacob's moment where he felt really small and insignificant? in the forces of nature, of God? Where was it that Jacob felt like everything breaks down and the walls and the mountains are caving into the sea? It was at this moment in Genesis 32 where he has come to the end of himself. 
and he stays up. You can know. Whenever somebody comes to the end of themselves, this is a common occurrence. They stay up all night. In verse 22, it says, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. He's up all night, and this is no man that he's battling. He's battling God. Jacob is wrestling with God. When we reach the end of ourselves, there is no other place to go than but surrender. But what that looks like in the culture of an indomitable, scheming man or woman, as we all have been raised in and programmed since the time of Jacob and Rebecca, through our 90s disaster movies, to everything we hear, we hear the culture of you can't beat mankind. And Psalm 46 says, you want to get to the center of the psalm where the peace and the goodness and the flowing streams are? The only way there is surrender. And Genesis 32 tells us in the most spectacular and true way that for most of us, for all of us, let's be honest, the night when we reach true surrender to God will be the long, dark night of the soul. And it will be a night spent wrestling God. Jacob has already been blessed by God, you guys. In this story, early on, earlier on, Jacob, right? The the whole angels climbing Jacob's ladder, that whole story that you might have learned in Sunday school. He's sleeping on a rock and he has this dream and he receives this blessing. Jacob already had a blessing. But he's wrestling because he can't see his blessing. And every human on this earth already has a blessing from God. So our wrestling isn't to like finally get it. That would be the indomitable man trying to seize God and wrestle him to the ground and get God to say uncle and get God to give up and bless us. No, God's already blessed you. And so when we reach the dark night of the soul and we are battling all night, it's not because God hasn't blessed us. It's because we can't see his blessing and we're wrestling with him, trying to figure out how we're going to do it. And the only answer to how we're going to do it is that we're not going to do it. Psalm 46 
is all about surrender. Frederick Buechner, one of the most read authors by Christian audiences, characterizes Jacob's divine encounter at the Jabbok River as the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. The magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. And that's not a bad thing, you guys. In fact, that's the best thing. What what does the man say? He says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then what happens? The sun rose upon him and he passed Peniel limping because of his hip. In the wrestling with God and in the prevailing, what is the prevailing? The prevailing isn't Jacob besting God. It is not him winning the match. The prevailing against man and God is getting through this life, getting through the schemers, getting through Rebecca's sin that Jacob inherited and Jacob began to use and encountering the tangled mess of Laban's sin and dealing with all of that and Esau's sin. Every character in this story is so simple and it's a tangled mess of sin. And the prevailing of Jacob versus men is simply persisting through the sin. And the prevailing with God is not defeating him. It is letting God defeat him. Letting God defeat Jacob is the prevailing that happens. And the resulting name that Jacob gives transforms from deceiver and supplanter and everything that points to him being the indomitable, the second who will become first. Because that's what he needed at that point of his life. I think there's some deep truth to this. That Jacob needed some sense of prophetic voice over his life. That he was going to be able to get there. But then once he got to this stage of his life and he went into this new wrestling. Because we all have different life stages where we need different prophetic words over us. This new stage, he got to a dark night of the soul because those words wouldn't work anymore. The scheming wasn't going to work anymore. God needed to take him someplace where God was indomitable above him, where he was surrendered to God. And the only way that that would work is if it left Jacob with a limp to remind him of his surrender. It was Jacob seeing God face to face in his most authentic self, doing his most authentic thing in searching for the blessing of God that God defeated him and said, in order to see my face and have my blessing, I need to show you something. You need to depend on me. And so the name he's given is no longer Jacob, but Israel And Israel means God rules. See the difference? Supplanter, deceiver. 
the one who's going to, to figure out ways to get there, must transform in our life, in our search for God, and in our conversion and surrender, which is what Jacob goes through here, to a state in which we can say with our whole being, it is not me trying to triumph over existence, over nature, over culture, over my upbringing, but it is God who rules over me. He is our refuge and strength and our ever-present help in trouble. It took a formative experience of profound pain in order for Jacob to depend on God over himself. This is God saying, enough. This is Eugene Peterson's translation there saying, get out of traffic. Be still. Know that I am God. And so what happens next is, is incredible. It's a grace. We see that Jacob continues the next day forward and actually has the most beautiful reconciliation with Esau. That the two put the past behind them. They've both become different men. They had to go through transformative experiences of seeing their limits and accepting who they were. And Esau's favor to Jacob is a nice gift, but that is not the blessing that God gives Jacob. The blessing that God gives Jacob is not the resulting success that happens after the dark night of his soul. Some of us confuse the things, the good things that happen in our life, the windfalls of money. Maybe the stimulus check was a huge windfall for you and felt like God's blessing. We confuse that with the blessing that God has put over our life. But Jacob can't count on Esau. He can only count on God. Don't you see it? God delivered Esau's favor to Jacob. But later, Jacob's own sons would take God's favor away from him in that sense, right? In the sense of a gracious feeling of comfort and prosperity. Because who is Jacob's son? Joseph. And what does Jacob's other sons do? The sons he had from Leah, what do they do to Joseph? They leave him for dead and sell him to the Egyptians. If Jacob were anchored on his circumstances for his blessing, oh, he would be sorely disappointed. but he has to anchor himself on God's blessing for his life as the one who he can depend on even in his limb. What destroys Joseph is the continuing sins from Jacob's parents. We can, I don't have time to go into family politics and family of origin, but there is so much about inherited sin in the Old Testament. The favoritism that Rebecca gave to Jacob is the same favoritism that Jacob gives to Joseph. And beware of that kind of favoritism. The mess of family politics that Jacob had just waded through, you would think he would conquer, but he couldn't. He perpetuated it onward. And that messed up and tangled up his life, but God redeems Joseph, and God redeems the nation of Israel through Joseph. Do you see how God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble? So the process of surrender will look like this in your life, and it will look, let's drill down on it, and let's make it a little more concrete here for us. Stories are nice, 
But what does this mean for you and I? What is the fruit of surrender to God in our life? You might be asking this question, have, have I surrendered? Like, have I? I don't, I actually, I don't know. Surrender for us looks like two different things. The first is conversion. And conversion is a complete turning. This is Saul in the New Testament who is literally overseeing the stoning of new Christians. The lynching and just, you know, basic like mark of death over this whole group of community of people. To Paul, who like literally is the inverse of that who is like, instead of like funneling down to nothing, is taking them from nothing to everything. Who is the missionary, starting churches, like complete role reversal. And that's what conversion looks like in a life. I think some of us forget the intensity of conversion. If you were raised in the church, you may never have fully witnessed this. But many of us, even raised in the church, have a conversion story in our life. A story in which there was a idea of a changing direction. Stephen Lawson writes, a true spiritual conversion radically alters the direction of one's life. It is not a partial change wherein one is able to straddle the fence between two worlds, as Jacob was trying to do there when he wrestled. It is not a superficial turning, a mere rearranging of the outward facade of a person's life. Conversion is not a gradual change that occurs over a period of time like sanctification. Instead, it is a genuine conversion when it occurs at the much deeper level within the soul of a person. It is a decisive break with old patterns of sin and the world and embracing a new life in Christ by faith. Some of you listening may not have gone through a conversion. You may be kicking the tires on this faith. You may be saying, wow, surrender to God on that level. This sounds pretty scary. Sounds pretty difficult. What, 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 uh, he'd be in charge of my entire life. That's the whole point. That's the whole deal. And if you read Psalm 46, you see the beauty in that. And we're going to get to that in just a second. For the rest of you who have said, I, I have surrendered. I, I have done a full 180 in my life at some point. That might have looked very extreme because my life was extreme. And so like the Sons of Korah outline here, it might have looked like everything mountains falling to the earth and the entropy of my soul and the second law of thermodynamics in my life, things falling apart, turning to the rebuild in Jesus. Or it may look more like, for some of us, just a a sense of reality of God and always knowing him but not really having him be yours. And a sense of, I liken it to this, a sense of being cornered by God. I know it doesn't sound very nice, but a sense that I can't get away from him. I can't deny him. In my most authentic, truthful self, I have to say that he is, and then I have to work my way out of that. And for those of you who have had that conversion at some point in your life, what it looks like to surrender then is a lifestyle of sanctification. It's a maturity in yielding before God day by day. Because we all deal with the creep, the sin that that comes in over our life and takes up room and board in our guest rooms and is allowed passage and even allowed sometimes to pay rent. And it needs to be wiped out and rebuilt. 
And that's where we get to the, the center of Psalm 46, this sort of inter, this inner chapter within it. Verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy place where the Most High dwells, God is within her. She will not fall. The Lord Almighty who is with us, verse 7, the God of Jacob is our fortress. It is in this city of God image that we see the dependence that comes when we are dwelling when we are dwelling in God, we are a city of God dwelling in him. But get this, God is dwelling in us. So for the nation of Israel, the temple was God's presence. And that was in Jerusalem, the city of God on his holy hill on Zion. That is where he dwelled in the city, but they also dwelled in him as people of God worshiping and devoted to him. And it is in this place that it says God will help. She will not fall. God will help her at daybreak. Nations are in uproar and kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. There's a little redux, a little repeat of this cataclysmic energy. But the Lord is with us. He is our fortress. Right away you see that there's the raging seas in verse 3 turn into a river whose streams make glad the city of God. God is shaping the waters in the world of dependence and dwelling in him. When we surrender, suddenly the raging entropy of the world shifts to an ordered reconstruction, to a controlled protection, to a fortress, to a stream. God is the controller of everything so he can take this tremendous potential for disaster and shape it around and guide it to us, his people, for his purposes. There's a profound metaphor here in this river because this river, Jerusalem is not like all the other major cities. I mean, Babylon was on the edge of a large, huge thoroughfare. There were coastal cities that could deal with naval power and just like Jerusalem's up on a hill and it doesn't have any major river water source. And there's so many downsides to that for a city. So many limitations. But what they did have was they had the spring of Gihon, which means gushing forth. And it was a spring coming out of the water that actually over time in Jerusalem got built into an aqueduct, an underground, a channeled river that brought the water into the city, providing water in this context for probably a besieged city. Do you see the beautiful metaphor of the way God is providing for the city an underground river that takes care of a besieged people. This is what it means to walk with God in surrender and dependence. This is the way that we walk like Jacob. And the beholding is essential as well, because if you just take this provision for granted as the blessed people, because the circumstances provide it for you, as we talked about earlier, I mean, Israel could say, well, we've got the spring, we've got the temple, we've got God's blessing, we've got God's blessing, but guess what happens? The behold is very essential. The oracle and the prophecy of the prophets is very essential for them, because many would fall from faith when Israel falls to Babylon. When the circumstances are conquered and the things are undone and the second law of thermodynamics does seem to apply to the city of Israel, 
the city of Jerusalem and everything does fall apart. But remember, those who look to the end times to see that God is victorious and indomitable, they go on. That's the Daniels. That's the Nehemiahs. But what it takes is a dependence, a humility like Jacob. John Wimber, who is kind of the founder of the Vineyard Church, who some of you may be familiar with, called Jacob's discovery, Jacob's result, the way Jacob proceeded in his blessing out of seeing face to face with God as leading with a limp. And he actually has an adage, never trust a leader without a limp. And he says this, it is through Jesus that we can receive the power of conversion and transformation. It's conversion and sanctification. The gift of not only surrender, but freedom. And the gift of endurance, faith, and courage. See, leading with a limp when God has promised his blessing requires a dependence in two directions. It requires a dependence on God and a dependence on community. It's it's actually a freedom. This is the paradox of surrender to God. It feels like it should be imprisonment, but it's actually freedom. How? Psalm 46 shows us. It seems like to say surrender to God would be imprisonment. Well, now I'm locked in with him forever. But look at that in the converse. God is our refuge and our strength. Is it really prison if everything you're being locked into is protecting you from everything else that will kill you? Or is that actually freedom? Think about it. Here's a person in the New Testament that might help us take this. You know, Jacob's an old figure from an ancient time. It might help for you to wrestle with this a little bit in your own life and think about where you discover, if you have discovered your limp, or where God may be leading you through to wrestle you, to provide you with a limp. And that's the story of Peter. I mean, Peter was an indomitable man. He he was the, the guy who would do anything for Jesus He would kill anyone for Jesus. He would do anything for Jesus up to Jesus' arrest because Peter thought Jesus would be king and take over, that he would provide a kingdom and provide the answer that Peter was after to allow Peter the second to become first, just like Jacob and Esau, to get him where he wanted to go. But his, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls the wish dream, his wish dream was shattered and he found that Jesus was not a means to his end. He actually saw what his God was in that moment and Peter went through the dark night of the soul too. Peter denied Jesus three times in the dark night of the soul. Peter thought Jesus would be done with him when Jesus came back. Because Peter had the explosion of his wish dream of his life. The collapse of the dream world. The mountains falling out from under him where he realized there was nothing left to stand on him that he could build from his life. There was nothing left. 
And that's what it took for him to actually find and develop the deep personal relationship with Jesus. That was the limp that Peter acquired that required Jesus' forgiveness, a dependence on Jesus to be relevant anymore. Jesus became Peter's crutch, the thing he must lean on to do his life. And it was actually a blessing to have the explosion of Peter's wish dream. So maybe now as you're thinking about that time where you said you were so small and so insignificant, perhaps that's a lead for you. Perhaps that's a lead for us to see where perhaps God has destroyed a wish dream in your life. God is actually after your wish dreams. He's after these, these fantasies. Bonhoeffer, I think it's in Life Together, wrote that we actually like the wish dream of community more than we like community itself. That's that's what a lot of us think about with church. We like the idea of Jesus. We like the idea of worship. We like the idea of everybody taking care of everybody. But we don't actually like the doing of it. Church, actually, what are all the stories you have of church? Are they lovely stories of great ideals, of the wish dream you have for church? No, the stories I tend to hear from people are their baggage, the abuse, how this church hurt them, how those people don't know what they're doing. It's all just a huge mess to actually do community. So I would challenge you, and I think God is challenging in your surrender, to give up your idea of the Christianity you want and start doing the Christianity that you actually believe in. Start actually doing that Christianity. And you will find that you will have to surrender because you won't be able to do it. You you won't be able to do that version of, of community. You'll reach the end of yourself. You'll realize, oh, the way I wanted people to help me when I actually try and help them, that takes a lot of time. That takes a lot of money. Oh, that's exhausting emotionally. And when you actually do it, you see what will happen? You will wrestle with God. He will best you and he will say, now you've seen my face. Now you have the limp. Now you have the humility. See, Wimber writes that Peter lost heart and trust when Jesus failed to fulfill his expectations of what a Messiah should be. But that got... Peter to the point he needed to be at, which is in John 21, where Peter gets to the realization that it's Jesus plus nothing else that is everything for my life. Jesus plus nothing is everything. It's the title of a a book I saw on the shelf the other day. Jesus plus nothing is everything. That's surrender. Because surrender, the wrestling in the moment, becomes when you're at the crossroads of the river Jabbok like Jacob. You're wrestling with God throughout the night because you have realized everything you could do, everything you could ever do without Jesus is actually nothing. It's worthless. It won't get you to the next place you want to go. It won't get you past death. It won't get you wherever the thing is where you're reaching the end of your limits. It won't get you there. Everything without Jesus is nothing. But Jesus plus nothing is everything. 
And when you realize that and you get to that surrender, you can dwell in the city. John 17, Jesus is talking about how I am in you, Father, and they are in me. There's this inside of Russian doll kind of language, isn't there? One inside the other, inside the other. And it's the same kind of circular or connected indwellingness that is happening where God dwells in the city. The Most High dwells there. And they dwell with him, in him. And it's this difference between an Elohim God, which is the God of the first and last part of this, the creator God, the indomitable God, and the Yahweh God. God with us. And it takes that act of surrender. In fact, Jesus Christ in the cross calls when he is on the cross, he calls out in a loud voice in Luke 23 and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said that, he breathed his last. To get past death required even Jesus himself for his flesh to surrender to God. And even there, Jesus is quoting Psalm 31, into your hands I commit my spirit. What's the second half of that? Helps your reading of the cross, I think. Helps your reading if you're saying, I don't want to convert, I don't want to do the surrender thing, John. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. It's already done. You have redeemed me. Jesus on his death on the cross surrenders fully in his flesh. The fully man part of Jesus surrenders fully because God has redeemed him and he will be resurrected. How do we practice the fruit? How do we practice that surrender? You see the fruit. We've talked about the act. We talked about the necessity, the process. We've talked about the fruit of that, the fruit of that surrender to be dwelling in Christ, to be in that Jesus plus nothing equals everything for my life because I found that everything plus everything plus it it just made nothing. That I could have everything, 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 and it would be nothing without Jesus. How do we practice that surrender? Well, there's an image that fits with this leading with a limp idea. And it's the Kitsugi art form image in Japanese sculpture. Maybe you've seen some of these ceramic pots. They're, 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 they're unique to Japanese culture. They would take a broken pot. It began with, with a, a nobleman who had a broken pot and sent it off to be repaired. And it came back stapled together. And he said, that's ugly. What could we do? It was his favorite pot. And so they repaired that pot with gold. And so all of the cracks are shining gold. And the Kintsugi image is a beautiful image to show us the glory and the beauty of what Christ does for our lives. We're his favorite pot. And we've been broken. And he is going to make it beautiful. More beautiful, exceptional to everybody. Because he's going to line it throughout and fuse it together. And make it permanent in Christ. So the leading with a limp is not, we're not worse off. We're better off. We're more beautiful. As you leave a season of quarantine next week in a church sense, right? As we begin to step out back into the reality of 
whatever's next. I don't want to say a pre-COVID existence because it's post-COVID. It's a new thing. God will use this past year and a half process for your surrender. He has tested your faithfulness in this process and you have stayed with him. You're coming to church. You've stayed in some degree faithful and he's asking for you to just continue to surrender. He's found the holes where the water runs out of your soul. And he wants you to say, not my will, but thy will, and to sit with that. So I want you to ask this on a personal level. Where have you said, I can do, you can do anything with me, God, but X. Okay, write this down. You can do anything with me, God, but X. Fill in the blank. And give him that. You can do everything with me, God, but make me homeless and give him that. You can do everything with me, God, but take my kids away and give him that. You can do everything with me, God, but take my health away and give him You You can do everything with me, God, but make me look bad by my friends or make me lose my friends. Whatever that X is that came to your mind the first time I said it, you can do anything with me, God, but... Surrender that part of your identity to him. Chances are it's the most central part of your identity because it's what got you here. And you need to surrender the scheming self that culture has taught you to embrace and build and worship and give that over to God on a personal level. Second, the second practice is a communal surrender. We have, some of us, have, you have identified and you have asked and you have gone through dark nights of the soul and you have asked God to patch the leaks in your soul and you have found those things that you were holding on to, the buts that you have not given him and you have released them. Some of you have done that, but remember, this is not a man standing on a hill and God's dwelling in that man. It is a city. And the city of God points forward to the church. It is a community. There is a communal act of surrender. And the only way that communal act of surrender can happen is if those in this church as a whole, I want us to be a church that takes the steps to admit their limps and surrender into community. Find one. Find three. Probably no more. Find a group in this community. Our cohorts are set up to do this. That's why we practice confession to each other. To share the limps of our life so that God can repair us in Christ to make us beautiful. Find a person. If you have nobody, find one person. Preferably not your spouse. Find another man, another woman if you're a woman, another man if you're a man, preferably. It's really good to do this in the same gender where you can confess intimately your whole soul. Build trust. Don't just do this with anyone. But actively work to build a sense of communal surrender into each other. Church, we will not reach the next stage of who we are supposed to be as citizens church if we not, cannot surrender communally into each other because we all have limps. We're a body. We all have unique abilities. We all have strengths and weaknesses. We all have areas where we are strong and areas where if you poke us there, we will bleed out. We have traumas. We have things that if you even bring them up, they take us into a tailspin. 
And the only way we can strengthen those things is to confess them into each other in community and see that we are still loved, even though we are angry people, even though we are jealous people, even though we are deceitful people, even though we are secretly selfish and miserly and hold on to our money, even though we harbor hatred for people, when we can commit and, and surrender that into someone else, into a community, into our church, we now will be holding on, not to each other as crutches, though that could happen, beware of that, but we will be dependent on God to fill up all of us as we lean in on each other with him holding us all together. God has blessed you. So when you ask him to bless you, he may bless you by saying this. You're not surrendering into community. My blessing is for you to surrender into community. My blessing is for you to surrender your but whatever to me. In the heart of this, verse 5 says, God will help at daybreak. God will help at daybreak. That's an allusion to the Red Sea where at daybreak, where the, the Red Sea had been like separated so that the children of Israel could walk through with Moses through the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh's army came through and at daybreak it collapsed and conquered Pharaoh's army. God will help her community. He will help the city, the community of his people at daybreak. Well, there was another daybreak the morning when the tomb was empty, when Jesus was resurrected. And that shows us the life that God is bringing. The birth of the church came out of this resurrection of daybreak, of this community that saw the power of Jesus for the world. The forgiveness of sins for the world that is seized by faith, by surrender. And it is open to literally everyone. So, he's got this, guys. He's got this. Whether it's giving time, attention, devotional life, prayer life, a community intimacy, dealing with your fears, admitting faults, follow him. You follow him. Be still enough. Do this to let him bless you. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Psalm 46. I thank you for the life of Jacob and the, and the teaching that it can do for us. God, I pray um, that you would reveal into us the things that we are withholding, that you may let us just wave the white flag of freedom of letting go, both individually and corporately. We pray these things in your name. Amen.